Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's progressive conservative government is planning to bypass public hearings in order to quickly pass that controversial long-term care legislation. Can Ontario hospitals actually force patients into LTC homes? It's been a long-debated question. Which is the better country in which to live, Canada or the United States? Oksana Kischuk, Director of Strategy and Insights with Abacus Data, will join us with the results of their latest survey. And do party leaders wield too much power in politics? We'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to cut what's going on at Queen's Park because we carried the, the announcement, I guess, about a week or so ago when uh, long-term care minister Paul Kalandra was talking about some of the changes they're going to make uh, to try to alleviate the pressure in hospitals. Well, now we find out the Ford government is trying to move this controversial measure to move patients into long-term care without consent uh, directly into third reading, which means there will be no public consultation, which means there will be no delegations. Nobody's going to be able to go before the, uh, the ministers and, and talk about this. That's yeah, somewhat problematic, right? Well, here's what the minister had to say. Are there instances where hospitals will be charging? Absolutely. If somebody refuses to move into a home, if they refuse to move into their home of preferred choice, then yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> pretty shocking, right? Well, the Liberal MP Dr. Amir Sanji uh, characterized the move this way. That is coercion, and that is fundamentally wrong. I think that's uh, echoing the sentiments of an awful lot of people. We'll use that one to kick off our uh, weekly segment with John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, who joins us every Friday uh, to talk about uh, things political at the provincial and municipal levels especially. Uh, John, welcome back to the show. Good to be with you, Bill. We knew that, uh, okay, it's a majority government, and, and that gives these guys mandates to move forward on, on some legislation, even if it might be controversial. Uh, but this one, I think, is catching a lot of people off guard. And I guess maybe the thing most controversial about this is the way that uh, that they're characterizing what might happen to uh, some of these people to move out but even more so that there's going to break the third reading which essentially means uh, we don't want to hear from the public on this we're just going to ram this through well this is the kind of measure that a government introduces when they're at the very beginning of a term because obviously it's it's going to be uh, hugely unpopular with the people affected um, they're skipping, and, and they know it, it. it is so grossly unpopular that I think they figure they've got very little to lose by removing the nicety of going through a hearing process. They know it's ugly, um, and uh, so they're just going to bull ahead with it. Now, whether at the end of the day we see, I can't imagine uh, a senior on uh, guaranteed income supplement there's no point. I mean, yes, they could charge them 1500 a day, but they're not going to get it. That's what a senior in that position, almost what they get in a month. So I think there's a bit of saber rattling here, but I, I think uh, it's clear this is a, a measure that the government feels it has to take. And I also think that, th that this did not just pop up since the election. I think this is something that they've been hearing from maybe the Ontario Hospital Association, this looks like it's too well formed to be something that was just dreamed up in the last couple of months. So I think it was one of these things where they say, let's get the election out of the way. And then we'll, we'll we're going to take some what will certainly be seen as fairly drastic measures. 
And and listen, and I, I agree that you know this. They didn't just throw this on the back of an envelope the day after the election. This has probably been in the works for some time, and and there is indeed a crisis. I mean, we'd be naive not to suggest that. I mean, you know, the story in Hamilton today that I, I, I guess since Hamilton Health Sciences has just commandeered a number of, of hotel rooms in downtown Hamilton uh, and offloading some patients to there. So I mean, we understand that this is a crisis situation right now. But when you get to the point where you're simply going into a, a senior in a hospital and say you, you're moving, and and by the way, uh, you, you're moving from Hamilton to St. Catharines or something, and as you say, I mean, the, the, we're not even sure how far away some of these are going to be. And if you don't go, we're going to start charging you. Uh, it, 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 it's technically what the minister said, yeah, we're not going to make the move, but you're putting a lot of pressure on them to get out of bed, basically, and get out of there. Yeah, it's there, there's no way of sugarcoating it, Bill. It's ugly, um, but this is uh, this is the sort of blunt end of when when you hear the phrase triage. Uh, it's normally thought about in terms of uh, uh, you know where they try to assess whose whose needs are the greatest, and and we mm -hmm. go there first. And uh, you know it, it's a it's a term that are, that came out of the battlefield originally. But there is a, a terrible crisis, and I guess the, the question is, if you've got someone who can't get through an emergency room into a hospital bed, somebody who's critically injured uh, or uh, severely uh, suffering from you know cardiac problems or whatever, and there's this backlog, uh, and you're trying to assess that against the unwillingness of someone to move to a, a long-term care bed, it's, it's a tough, miserable decision. But given that our hospital system is in the condition it's in. Uh, I mean, you certainly, it could be argued we, we should have had a better system. We should have spent more money. We should have seen this coming. But here we are, uh, and we don't have uh, adequate uh, means of, of moving people around and getting the most efficiency out of, the, out of these uh, hospitals. So uh, it's, it's ugly, it's miserable, and... Uh, and at the end of the day, let's see how much of it, uh, as you pointed out, in Hamilton, I, I think it's going to be, it's going to have more effect, frankly, in smaller communities and northern communities. You get into a place like Hamilton, where we already had a hotel that had been taken over for the COVID crisis. Uh, it's mm -hmm. already fitted out in a hospital, you know, with hospital beds, hospital setting. So our solution in, in Hamilton may be no more than simply moving people there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you're in St. Mary's or, uh, you know, Owen Sound or someplace like that, then then you could see people getting moved uh, further away. I, I guess the other concern, and I've heard this from a number of people over the last couple of days that are opining on this, uh, is, you know, the alternative here is, as you say, move them into long-term care facilities. Uh, that they've, they've, got their, they've got their own set of problems. I mean, what, we know that there's overcrowding, understaffing there. There's a lot of concerns about uh, the living conditions in some of these facilities, too. It's, it's not really the best option for some of these people, I would think, but it's the only option that they're presenting right now. Well, I was uh, I was looking at uh, the long-term care ministry's news releases uh, while I was waiting to do this with you, and they haven't issued a news release since April. Uh, but back in April, uh, they were talking about creating something like uh, uh, thirty thousand beds. So whether that got lost in the election, uh, I'm not sure. But it, I mean, let's face it: we we keep talking about beds, and you know. That it's such a misnomer because it obviously isn't a bed. It's it's the staffing to to look after that individual. 
And and I guess what it really comes down to that if you take a person um, who really should be in a long-term care setting out of a hospital, um, they're, they're moved to a setting where they don't need as much uh, care and therefore um, the nursing staff can be spread over more patients. I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. It's almost like uh, a widget factory in a sense where, you know, your, your time and motion studies uh, almost come into play. The, the concern, of course, for anybody who had loved ones or has loved ones in some of these facilities, uh, it's, you're absolutely right. The level of care is, is not going to be the same and probably not needed to be the same as it would be in a, in a primary care, in other words, in a hospital. Uh, but oftentimes it's family members that fill that gap. You know, they, they visit every day. They help with feeding or lunching or going for a walk or something like that. Uh, you move somebody 30, 40 kilometers away, it's problematic for them to actually do that. And I, I, the isolation and, and the resulting things that can happen from a, a psychological standpoint uh, can be problematic. And, and I, I know we're kind of playing it into the hypothetical, but we've seen that happen in the past. And I don't know that they've thought that far ahead. Uh, I think they have thought it that far ahead, but I don't think they see an option. Uh, I, I, I really believe the, the system uh, is is really in crisis, Bill. I, I think that's one area where almost everybody would agree, mm-hmm. and and the fixes are uh, simply not able. You can't implement them quickly enough to 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 provide the the kind of solution people would like to see. Um, there was a very interesting uh, interview uh, on uh, the the national broadcaster. <laughs> I'll say uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, where a, a very senior uh, health uh, expert who's a, a teacher said that in her view the, the people that are running the system now are not the people probably who should be devising uh, improvements because they're simply too exhausted after going through two years of COVID and really being just in a flat-out crisis mode that it probably requires somebody who hasn't been in the midst of that to try to come up with some answers. And it's not just money. I, I think we, we talked about this. The United States, on a percentage of GDP, spend almost double. They certainly spend double what we spend, but we're, what we're spending is more in line with what Germany, France, Holland, uh, all the other G7 countries. So we, we seem to be spending an amount that uh, is, is commensurate with, with what most of the Western nations are spending. The Americans are just blowing money out the door, and I don't think anybody would suggest that their system is the one we should be emulating. And yet, uh, if you look at Germany, you look at France, you look at Denmark and some of these places, they seem to have smoothed it out better than we have, and they're not spending a lot more money than we are. So there are solutions available, but uh, switching to those solutions uh, is always going to cause some pain, I think. Yeah, and there's just I think almost a, a typical human reaction you know, to, to resist change. It's uncomfortable for an awful lot of people. We'll see. Uh, one other piece of, got a couple of minutes left. One other piece of legislation uh, where they actually have decided to have uh, hearings on uh, was this uh, strong mayor's business. And I know you and I talked briefly about that last week, uh, but it's moving into situations now where it's going to be going into the legislature in the first, second, third reading. And it's a majority government. I mean, it's going to pass. We know that. But the the line of questioning that uh, some of the opposition uh, MPPs had for the minister yesterday was interesting. Uh, the 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 bill, as you know, John, is called the Strong Mayors Building Homes Act, and and the 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 theme of the questioning seemed to be what 
does one have to do with the other? There's not very much, if any, mention about building homes in this act. It's really just to give the mayor more powers. Uh, and uh, the concern there is, you know, is it how how is that necessarily going to mean? You know, we're going to build more houses. Uh, there's a bit of a disconnect there at the same time. But I guess uh, that, that's typical in, in politics, isn't it? I mean, you wordsmith a little bit to try to make the bill look more attractive. Well, exactly. And and in the case of, uh, you know, the housing crisis, and uh, there, there, there's no question there is a huge backlog of uh, applications to build houses. And uh, uh, so there's, you know, it's being described as red tape. And, and to some degree it is. But the real problem, uh, certainly I've talked to people uh, involved in uh, planning locally, the biggest problem we're facing right now in the province of Ontario with with these approvals is there are no there, there's just a tremendous shortage of planners. So we're back into a personnel shortage. It's like the hospitals. Um, there's planners are very hard to find, and in the case of Hamilton, they asked uh, staff generally once the COVID started to reduce. They said, "Well, you know, folks, can you come back three days a week?" And what happened in Hamilton, and, and certainly in the planning department, was a mass resignation because they can get jobs anywhere, and they can get jobs with uh, uh, jurisdictions that will allow them to do it remotely. So you need planning staff, or, or you just say to hell with it. We're we're just not going to bother with planning, and and we'll just you know rubber stamp these uh, these applications, and we'll have houses, you know, twenty five story apartment buildings, and. Uh, houses in people's driveways and all of that but certainly one of the biggest problems once again it comes back to people there you know is the shortage of, of planning uh, expertise are you, i got a minute left here are you comfortable with the the one element here that uh, a lot of people have raised with the strong mayor itself is giving the mayor the power to essentially hire staff uh, could hire the city manager, could hire all the department heads or fire them, as the case might be, uh, as opposed to council voting on that and, and these sorts of things. Is, is is that going in the right direction? Well, right now, council doesn't vote on any of that either. So, uh, you know, it's they basically hire the city manager and the city manager handles all of that. I, I That part of it, uh, I think, has some merit, although we're dealing with human beings and... Uh, there, there will be mayors who will become, you know, who will misuse that power. I think it's fair to say with 444 uh, municipalities in Ontario, we're going to find some mayors that, that will, if, if it was extended. Now, in fairness, it looks like it's only going to be extended to the large cities. But still, you could get, uh, you look at Brampton, uh, with Patrick Brown. I mean, he was accused of of hiring uh, a bunch of toadies from Niagara who had been disgraced uh, in their municipal offices there. So you you could get situations where you're going to have a real mess on your hands. But I, you know, on principle, I like the idea of the mayor being able to uh, have key people in key positions. I think that's probably a good thing. Well, that one's moving along too. So uh, that's uh, going to be, and, and will be in place, by the way, by the time the municipal elections roll around October 24th. And as you mentioned, uh, Toronto and Ottawa will be on the first round of that, and we'll see how that works out. Uh, as always, John, thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again in a few days. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, have had this discussion, gosh, off and on, I guess, most of our lives, right? I mean, we live right next door to the United States, so the United States of America. 
they've got just about everything anybody could want to, to hear them talk. It's it's wonderful, and they're great neighbors. Uh, and there's some of us on this side of the border that would like to live on the other side of the border. I mean, we're inundated with American culture uh, through media and, and so many other different things. So you can there's an allure there. We get that. But uh, it's interesting when you get right down to it and say, well, you know, what would you rather do? And the good folks at Abacus Data have done that uh, and, and asked Canadians just how they feel. Uh, is this a better place to live than the south of the border? Uh, joining us to talk about the results of the survey is uh, Oksana Kischak. Oksana, of course, is the Director of Strategy and Insights at Abacus Data. Uh, always a pleasure, Oksana. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, great to chat with you again, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, about our opinions about the United States. I guess maybe the overview here is, is to, to get right to the to the headline here. Uh, we are overwhelmingly glad to be Canadians and glad to be on this side of the border and living in this country, but uh, that not everybody is like that, is they? are they? Yeah, so I guess to start at the top there, overwhelmingly, yes, we do want to, to live in Canada. 91% of us say it's better to live in Canada than the United States. But you're right, um, that sentiment isn't held necessarily the same way by, by certain groups. Um, we find that men under 45, um, Conservative Party voters, those who aren't vaccinated, and PPC voters are sort of more likely to lean towards the maybe the U.S. is the better place camp. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> it's. I, I if we talk about it longer, I could see how they kind of are grouped together. Maybe this sort of raw, raw America kind of kind of folks, but um, it, it is interesting. Well, from a political standpoint, uh, you know, the fact that they are well, let's call them small C conservative, I guess, uh, because I know that you actually did break it down into parties from uh, you know conservatives to People's Party, or the Maxime Bernier's party, et cetera, et cetera. So the young males that might be a little more right leaning than than average, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I guess you know the, a lot of the sentiments that some of them were expressing to you were probably very much what we've heard about you know like the the, the freedom train and everything in ottawa you know where they just leave us alone let me do what i want when i want and that sort mm -hmm. of thing so there's an added and i guess they feel that they can do that more in the states because there are probably more elected officials down there that seem to be like-minded uh you know the governor of texas the governor of uh, of, of florida and other uh, different areas like that 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 seem to to say that's that's what you can do in this uh, particular state so i i can see the allure i guess for yeah. that but most of us are pretty comfortable with where we are and, and what we believe in and and who we're living with don't we yeah, yeah, most of us uh, kind of across all regions of Canada and um, for the most part across all age groups, although young folks, so those 18 to 29 are a little bit more likely to to say uh, the U.S. might be better. But by and large, the majority of us in all of those groups say that Canada is the better place to be. So what's the what's the allure for us now? Is it is it our healthcare system, which is under attack these days? But uh, when you compare it to what's going on in the states, you know maybe maybe we're still doing better than uh, a lot of other countries are. Um, safety, I guess, comes to mind. I mean, anybody that watches any American news any length of time is going to say, "What you know the the shootings and the crime that goes on in some of those big cities." I I don't want any part of that. And and yeah. and we kind of look down there and figure maybe maybe it's safer here. So what are the, what what did the survey tell you? Yeah, so we looked at four metrics and you hit two of those uh, on the nose right away. So safety from violence um, was one of them, better health care, financial well-being and enjoyment of life and asking people which one's better, is it better in the U.S. or, or better in Canada? And so you're totally right. Um, safety from violence and better health care are, are much better in Canada, according to the, the majority of people. And, and I, I mean, I guess, uh, again, a lot of the stories in the news about health care 
um, aren't great in Canada at the moment. However, there's still sort of that Canadian pride with healthcare and with sort of safety from gun violence and, and all those sorts of things. So the story sort of swirling in the news about um, sort of school shootings um, makes us think that Canada is a lot safer. And then when it comes to healthcare, I think there's that that public-private conversation, I think, is still sort of seen as, as Canada is sort of that public uh, side and, and offers better health care that way as well. Financial well-being is an interesting topic. What, what, what did you hear there? Yeah, so a little bit more of a split there. So around 40% say it's better in Canada, uh, which is still the majority uh, quarter say better in the U.S. and then a third say there's no difference between financial well-being. So that's where sort of the Canadian values and sort of things start to slip a little bit and we say hmm, maybe it is better off in, in the U.S., which is interesting. But I think kind of goes back to that point and, and why those maybe certain groups are, are driven a little bit more to the U.S. about that sort of freedom piece and, and that elusive freedom to choose your own path and, and get rich if you want to. Enjoyment. Uh, you, you talked about enjoyment of life, which is always interesting. Uh, you know, that's day-to-day existence, I guess, the things that are available to us and what we can do. Are we, mm-hmm. are we pretty comfortable with that? Yeah, that one also is a little bit split. So 38% say it's better in Canada, 38% say there's no difference, and then 23% say better in the U.S. So a little bit more of a maybe it is better in the U.S., I'm not really sure um, sort of sentiment there. Um, Canada is sort of slightly winning out by default, I think, on, on that one. But um, if, if anything, I can see why that would sort of be the, the option that people would say maybe it is better in the U.S. than, than it is here. Yet, uh, they, they, they do say, well, the American dream, you know, that anybody can grow mm-hmm. up to be president or anybody can, you know, grow up and be a millionaire if they just put their minds yeah. to it, etc. Uh, I guess we're not buying that on this side of the border, are we? No, I think we're, I mean, I can see why maybe that sort of American dream freedom piece is sort of drawing those financial well-being and enjoyment of life pieces a little bit more towards the states. But when we look at the American reality and, and have to evaluate things like safety and healthcare. Um, people automatically side with Canada on those sorts of values for our lives. You know, fascinating. I mean, as you mentioned, we've got some concerns and we've got problems in this country. Let's not be naive about it. And healthcare, which you guys talked about, is one of them and and a number of other issues and public safety as, as well, certainly. But at the same time, I guess, you know, when you guys do a survey, when Abacus does a survey like this and, and starts asking Canadians, I think what it actually does probably, Exxon, is it makes us think a little bit and say, hey, you know what, maybe it's not that bad here after all i mean you know you know yeah we've got our concerns and everything but when you compare it to some of the other things we've seen in some of the other jurisdictions uh you know i think people feel pretty comfortable being in this country yeah i think that sort of number about which country is better to live in and just the fact that 91 percent of us had canada rather than the united states despite a lot of those things sort of pulling us where we are divided on the enjoyment of life and maybe a little less certain about the financial well-being we'll have in canada versus the u.s U.S. yet everyone is sort of solidly in the Canada camp that it is um, like you're saying kind of all things considered when you reflect on it it really is the better place to be living. Male to female I mean we, we've talked about uh, demographics and we talked about the age difference it used to be young males I guess the ones that may be a little more restless shall we say uh, than the the rest of us but when it comes to gender difference uh, men versus women uh, with these sorts of thoughts uh, how, how does that break down? Yeah, so there aren't too, too many sort of specific differences between the gender. I think men are a little bit more likely to side with maybe the U.S. is better. But it's really when you apply um, the gender and the age filter that you really start to see some sort of drivers. And I think that sort of comes down to um, perhaps life stage and, and life goals of, of different individuals um, in those different groups and sort of what sort of things are, are driving them. For example, the, the reason men sort of 
under 45 are sort of driven to the U.S. is a lot to do with the enjoyment of life and financial well-being variables. So they're sort of that group that's really bought into that American dream rather than American reality right now. Yeah, well, I guess to make a quick buck, you talked about vaccination, though, and I was intrigued by that uh, to get the read on this. I mean, we know statistically uh, the overwhelming majority of Canadians are vaccinated, most of them mm-hmm. double vaccinated, thankfully. Uh, but the fact that it came up there and the fact that the numbers may be skewed a little higher than, than we might have thought uh, indicates mm-hmm. that uh, that there is still some resistance to, to that. And and I, I don't know if that's coming from some of the stuff we see from the American media or maybe, you know, the, what happened in Ottawa. But, I mean, it, it is having an impact on, on young people especially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting group to study, I think, in a lot of different um, ways and a lot of different questions that you ask. It's always interesting to look at them. And so um, I think in this case, what unvaccinated sort of Canadians are sort of pulling the trend here is that they're sort of, talking about, again, not to go back to it, but that freedom piece. And so freedom and autonomy and, and that sort of thing. And they really think that um, that is, is something that is offered a little bit more in the United States. So they're more likely to say that um, life enjoyment and financial well-being um, are better in the U.S. than in Canada. And then it's also tied to those things like safety and, and healthcare and things like that, which is such an interesting thing, I think. Um, safety from violence, you'd think, is not necessarily something that would be tied to vaccination status, but it is. Is um, I kind of this group is split between whether or not safety is better in Canada or there's no difference between Canada and the U.S. So um, I mean we could even get into a whole conversation about um, trusted media, which we know this group um, is a lot more hesitant about that. So do they believe the stories of, of gun violence and, and all of those things? And could talk for a really long time about kind of how all of those things are linked, but I, I really think there are some some linkages there. Oh, absolutely. And, and and we've seen this and you and I've talked about this in the past when we look at attitudes, uh, you know, distrust for, for, you know, media outlets and, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there's a story on, on the news last night about something, a, a shooting in a city or something. I don't believe mm-hmm. it, even though they saw it with their own eyes. Yeah. I mean, they're just, yeah. they're skeptical that, that, that everything yeah. is being controlled. It's a kind of a big brother attitude, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it's easy for them to have that kind of mindset. Uh, because you can go on social media and probably within 30 seconds find any kind of a website uh, that's going to substantiate that point of view too. So it kind mm-hmm. of emboldens them. But uh, you know that's yeah. the good, bad, and ugly, I guess, of social media. And it's 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 created skeptics, which is not a bad thing, uh, but they become entrenched in that, and then it gets somewhat of a, a problem. And we've seen that on both sides of the border, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that this sort of unvaccinated pocket of, of folks, albeit small, sort of represents that little bit more extreme kind of taking those views about the, the media is lying and and we shouldn't trust it and, and trust the conversations that we're having there. Um, and and that is really tied to those two pieces, I think, about violence and healthcare, which are things that um, do appear in the media a lot when sort of weighing the pros and cons of, of Canada versus the U.S. Well, and that extends beyond the media too. I mean, if, if you're developing that mindset and God knows there are a number of people around here that are trying to foster that and make, and see that, that mushroom, uh, but it extends basically to our institutions. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, they don't trust government. They don't trust the media. They don't trust uh, yeah. authority figures and things of this nature. And yeah. and we see that in, in some areas in the States. And, and of course, we have to be careful not to generalize. Uh, but it's there and, and, and it's, it's a concern down there. And I guess one of the things that we've noticed here in the last year and a half or so is we're seeing more and more of it on this side of the border too, which I suppose, I guess, Oksana, is maybe more of a, a reflection of the, the impact that, that the United States culture has on this country. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation, I think, to have on, on this instead of giving people the choice between those two countries, I think is giving us a little bit of an eye into that about um, that sort of trust in, in institutions and, and different pieces and things like that. I mean, yeah, we had that whole conversation about sort of trust in media and trust in government and how those things are linked um, to, to all sorts of things. So it'd be fascinating to sort of run this these questions against uh, those other questions as well about trust in, in these different institutions and understand if, if that's sort of driving people towards wanting to move south of the border as well. When you were doing the analysis here and, and, and talking to people during the survey here, uh, I, I just I don't want people to get the, the wrong idea here that uh, that you know Canadians don't like Americans and you know look down on them. Uh, the fact that so many of us want to stay in this country and live here is is, is great and that's very gratifying. Uh, but did you get the sense that that, that, that you know we still like them? That they, there's no animosity here at all. It's just that we prefer where we are right now. Yeah, yeah. I don't think this is a measure of, of do we like Americans or do we hate them? I think it's more about where is the place that we want to live? Where do we want to raise our family? Where do we want to pay taxes? Where do we want to invest in real estate? Um, where do we want to be employed? Where do we want um, our employment benefits to be tied to? I think there's sort of conversations about that working in Canada versus the United States and the benefits you receive um, in different countries. I think it's a lot more tied to those pieces and then tied to the institutions in those countries as well. So um, kind of do we want the Canadian system of government or the Canadian politicians representing us or do we want those in the U.S.? Um, I think it's a lot more about that than than who do we want our, our neighbours to be. Well, uh, because that varies from different parts of the world, of course. I mean, you know, we've heard the, the stories about the ugly American or some people in other parts of the world in Europe, some European countries, etc., uh, have a real distrust of Americans for a variety of reasons, probably more political than anything else. But we're pretty comfortable be- living next door, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't think in in any way we're saying we we wish they weren't uh, right down there, <laughs> right next to our neighbors. But we're just saying we're we're comfortable staying here and, and having them visit us uh, here in Canada. So, uh, what do you take away from this right now? That that, that you know, because there has been some animosity uh, politically. There was uh, for for about four years, and and there's still, I, I guess, some concern about you know them impacting us. I mean, there used to be an attitude that uh, you know that we're you know sleeping with the elephant right beside us here, and we got to be careful. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, we we like it. We like visiting there. But we you know probably a lot of us probably have relatives on the other side of the border in some way, shape or form. Uh, but we're just, we were comfortable being where we are and who we are. And I, I guess from the numbers here that we seem to be pretty comfortable with, with, with who we are and what we are and what we have up here. In other words, why move if, if there's nothing else going on, there's always going to be an allure. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I love going to New York city. I love going to Boston. I love going to Chicago. They're great cities. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it's good to get back home. I think that's kind of the Canadian attitude, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's a great place to visit, but but maybe not a place to live. I mean, we're also tracking sort of whether or not Canada or the U.S. is heading in a good or bad direction. And and many more Canadians than in the past say Canada is is sort of needing some room for improvement. But they're also equally sort of concerned about the direction the U.S. is heading with a lot of um, the stories that have been kind of coming out of the U.S. in recent months. So it's kind of sort of trusting the, was that saying, maybe trusting the devil you know? Um, mm-hmm. saying they're sort of, um, we know what Canada offers and especially on sort of pieces of, of safety and healthcare, there's a lot more trust in, in what Canada can offer there. Um, so it's a little bit, a little bit more secure and, and stable um, for, for many folks. 
Always interesting uh, when you guys do the work here at Abacus uh, to, to get a, 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 sh a snapshot, really, as to where we are right now. And because there there have been a lot of questions over the last little while. I mean, it's been a rough two and a half, three years for all of us now because of COVID and lockdowns and everything else. And every now and then, it, it, you want to find out just where people's attitudes are, and and, and maybe even if they've changed too. And it's uh, it's gratifying to know that uh, that for the most part, anyway, we're happy to be where we are and and with <laughs> whom uh, we are are hanging out these days. Uh, Always a pleasure. Uh, Oksana, thank you so much for the time today. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you later. Take care. Oksana Kischuk, who is the uh, Director of Strategy and Insights uh, with Abacus Data, and uh, always a comparator between Canadians and, and Americans and attitudes, of course, about those two countries as well. And uh, it's uh, it well, it can flare up as it did, if, you know, when we get into things like trade issues and some of the issues that have been going on here and, you know, the the fact, you know, that we have tariffs that are being laid and everything else, it's kind of a back and forth. But notwithstanding all of that and the fact that, yeah, we can both get riled from time to time with each other's actions, uh, I think there's a general feeling, of hopefully on both sides of the border, uh, that it's good to have neighbors like that. And, and yeah, we're going to argue from time to time. But uh, we kind of like them being down there, and I think they kind of like us being up here for the most part, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's been a lot of discussion over the years about the, the work that goes on in, in Parliament and on Parliament Hill and who does what and who's allowed to do what. And uh, had there have been some suggestions over the years, of course, about how we could actually make it a better system. Uh, and our next guest, I think, has some rather novel ideas. You, you see the headline here, and it simply says uh, it's a time to take power away from the prime minister and you think okay well there you go that's partisan well no this is not just this prime minister this is this is about technique and every prime minister going forward uh the uh, suggestions are coming from uh, mp michael chong michael of course is a, a longtime member of parliament and uh he joins us uh oh, halton hills and and, and uh, of course uh wellington is in the riding of course and he's the shadow minister of foreign affairs uh so he's obviously been pretty busy over the last couple of days with what's been going on with our prime minister and some of the other heads of state but uh, i want to talk about these reforms or these uh these proposed reforms anyway and uh, we bring michael chong back to the bill kelly show to talk about this michael it's a pleasure to have you on the show today thank you Great to be here, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about this, and uh, and and maybe I just a, in way of background, uh, talk to us a little bit about methodology. And and I've I've talked to other MPs about this over the years too, Michael, and and you've been pretty vocal about this uh, about who does what and who's allowed to do what. There's a, a pretty strict protocol within the party systems there, and and we're talking about all the parties uh, that MPs can and cannot do. That's right. You know. I our system has really changed over the last 150 years. You know, 150 years ago, MPs could get up and represent their constituents by speaking on the floor of the House of Commons. They didn't need anybody's approval to do that. Uh, MPs could sit on committees, uh, and leaders had very little say in whether or not they sat on those committees and did their work. Um, but the system has changed, and so today, when an MP wants to rise to speak in the House of Commons on behalf of their constituents or on, you know, for any other reason, they need to go through their whips and House leaders and get on what is called a list. Uh, it's a list system. And if the leaders in House, if the whips and House leaders decide that they won't get on the list, then they can't speak in the House. And so I think um, things like that need to change. You know, when it comes to committees, for example, uh, if a member doesn't tow the party line, or crosses swords with uh, crosses sword with uh, the sword with the leader, so to speak. Uh, you know they're yanked off committee, and and a more a different member is put on committee. So, 
the system has changed substantially, and what it has effectively done is it has weakened the ability of MPs to represent their constituents. And this is a long-standing problem, as you've pointed out. It doesn't. It's not just about this current prime minister. Um, it's been a problem that's been uh, building for decades. And some of the ideas I put forward in the House of Commons uh, several months ago are an attempt to try to reform the system to make it uh, to allow MPs to more effectively represent Canadians. How did this evolve? You've been up there a long time, Michael, and, and you've seen some of the changes, uh, and not all of them are changes for the, the better uh, when it comes to this, but there's, and, and you're not the first one to suggest uh, that there's been a centralization of power within the party systems and certainly within the government uh, of the day, whoever that government might be. Uh, but it's, it happened, and it, it didn't happen quickly, but it happened over a period of time. Uh, and, and people like yourself have been commenting about this and other MPs as well. Uh, but I guess the fact that you can't do a whole lot about it speaks to the fact that something has to change here uh, because MPs don't really have that, that power, that ability uh, to be able to, to, to be heard and be, be themselves as opposed to simply, well, you've heard the characterization in the past. You know, the backbenchers just sit there and put their hand up and vote when they're told to and then you know, be quiet otherwise, and, uh, uh, which is not what we as the, the voters want to see from our members. Well, it's a good question, Bill, as to why this all came about. It's, there's no single reason why it all came about. Um, there are a number of reasons. You know, one reason, for example, is that we were once a colony, and a lot of the decisions made uh, were made in London, London, England, on mm-hmm. our behalf by the Foreign and Colonial Office. But as, as, as Canada gained independence in the 1920s and 30s through to the 50s, uh, the Foreign Colonial Office in London gradually gave up some powers of appointment, uh, other powers, and they transferred those powers effectively to the Prime Minister's office in this country. And that's one reason some of these uh, some of these things came about because of that transition from from being a colony to being an independent country. Uh, the other reason is uh, the law of unintended consequences. Some changes were introduced with the best of intentions. And they had unintended consequences. So, for example, in the 1970s, televisions were introduced. Television Mm -hmm. recording was introduced in the House of Commons. And before that, there were no recordings of the proceedings of the House of Commons. And so Canadians finally got a chance to see how the House worked. Um, But one of the consequences of that was that the speakers asked for lists to be drawn up of members who were going to speak because it didn't look good on the TV cameras for a speaker to be searching through, uh, you know, looking at the entire house of some 300 members and figuring out which member was going to speak and stumbling over their writing names. And so the speaker of the day asked that uh, the whips and house leaders come prepare lists of members who were going to speak for her. It was uh, Jean Sauvé at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that eventually evolved into the list system we have today, where, where the House leaders and whips use it as a, as a form of control. Um, so, you know, there are a variety of reasons why this all came about. Uh, it's no single leader, no single prime minister that led to this, and it's no single reason. But it's clear that we have really weakened the ability of ordinary members of parliament to represent their constituents. 
Well, and you've seen this happen, and we've seen it happen with other MPs. Uh, if, and as you mentioned, Michael, if you don't toe the line, uh, as, as I was reading the, the piece about your uh, recommendations here, I, c- I couldn't help but think of a, a former MP by the name of Garth Turner. I know you know Garth, and I just remind our listeners, he was a uh, a guy who's a financial expert and ran for politics, I believe when Stephen Harper first became leader. Anyway, uh, Garth is, uh, I guess, the best characterization, Michael. He's a free thinker, right? <laughs> uh, and and yeah. not one to play the, you know, the role of, of just you know, following following the rules, et cetera, uh, which jerked the leader, which jerked everybody else. And eventually, as he explained in a book that he wrote about it, he was frozen out. I mean, he was he was elected, so he was there. But I guess, he, well, he, as he told me one day, I, I think he was joking. He says, they moved my office down in the basement beside the furnace room. And, and, uh, and that sounds like an extreme example. But I mean, what happens is you basically become a non-entity, don't you, in the caucus and certainly in the House, if you don't toe the party line if you don't do what the whip tells you and certainly what the party leader tells you to do you're not going to have a voice there that's right and and we are an outlier amongst western democracies in that kind of control on part of party leaders particularly the prime minister you don't see that kind of control in you know the westminster parliament in london or in the u.s congress or in legislatures in germany or france or the netherlands or or any other western uh, democracy. And so I think we need, we're in desperate need of further reforms to the House. And so I propose three that I hope the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs will consider. Um, you know, one of the big reforms I think we need to take a look at is a very simple one. MPs have effectively lost the right to speak in the House of Commons because of this list system that I have referred to. And I think we need to restore that right. Any member of Parliament who is elected to the House should be able to get up on the floor of the House and speak on any topic, speak on any matter without having to first go through their party leadership to get approval. Um, So I think that's the first and biggest reform that the committee should take a look at. I think the second reform is I believe that party leaders, particularly the Prime Minister, have way too much control over parliamentary committees. There are two dozen committees of the House of Commons. That's where a lot of, in fact, most of the work of the House of Commons is done in those two dozen committees. And the problem is, is that the PM effectively controls those committees because he appoints the chairs and he appoints the majority, uh, the plurality of, of committee members. And so he can hire and fire those people at will um, through uh, the process that they have set in place. And effectively, he controls what goes on and that reduces accountability. And so I think we should go to the direct election of committee chairs and committee members and that i think will rebalance power and then finally you know the pm appoints a lot of the people who administer the house of commons the clerk of the house the law clerk uh, the sergeant at arms and a half of the members of the powerful board of internal economy that runs the entire house administration which is roughly a 300 million dollar budget um, and so I think the PM should no longer be making those appointments. I think the Speaker should make uh, appointments for clerks and for sergeant-at-arms, and I think uh, backbench members of Parliament should elect uh, the members to the Board of Internal Economy. So those are some three reforms that could be easily accomplished, and I hope the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs will take a serious look at them. I mean, for people that do watch Question Period, and I'm a political junkie, so I, you know, I'm guilty as charged there. I, I do. Uh, they probably don't realize just how orchestrated that whole thing is about who's allowed to ask questions, what questions are allowed to ask, uh, and and it's as you say, you'd, you'd rather have. Uh, 
everybody with that opportunity to, to weigh in on this, no matter what their political party or, or you know what the question might be. Uh, and I do watch the uh, the British question period too from the UK, and and it's much different. Uh, so you'd you'd like to think that we could learn from that. Uh, I see uh, uh, the article I was reading about this in the Globe that uh, that there are some uh, political scientists that have looked over your suggestions and think these are pretty good ideas. What, what's what's the word from your colleagues up on the hill there? Is there a chance this thing could be adopted? At least some of them, anyway. Yeah, I think there's a chance that they could be adopted. A lot of my colleagues share these concerns. Um, it's encouraging, actually, to see this much interest in these in these reforms. You know, I I spoke in the House about this, and and then uh, posted it on social media, and a number of media outlets have picked up on it. And I've had a lot of people just come up to me in the last several weeks saying, "I really like these ideas. I hope you know the House takes them up." So I've been surprised at the kind of grassroots support for this. Uh, I didn't think that in the the dog days of August that ordinary uh, voters would be paying attention to this kind of stuff, but they have been. So it's been really encouraging, and I'm I'm optimistic that hopeful that some of these will be taken up. Uh, I got about a minute left here. Uh, what's the process here? I mean, do, do, do you present this to the committee? Do they vote on it right away? Does it come back to the house for a vote? So the process is that we had a we had a debate in the house um, mm-hmm. in earlier, several months ago, those ideas that were presented, not just mine, but the ideas of many others, uh, are sent to one of the 24 committees of the House, which is the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs. And that committee will take up these ideas, study them, and then eventually produce a report. Um, If that report recommends changes, and the uh, the House will then have an opportunity to vote on that report, if it votes to adopt, to approve the report, then the changes are put into effect immediately. Um, so this could happen in the next year or so if uh, if the committee produces a report with recommendations to put them into effect, and and secondly, the House votes in favor of the report. So well, we'll be watching with great interest because, uh, like I say, a lot of folks are looking at this right now and saying there's got to be some improvements, and I, you seem to be heading down the right road here. So, uh, good luck with this, Michael. As always, thanks for the time. I know how busy you are today. Appreciate you joining us uh, for a few minutes. Anyway, great to be here, Bill. Take care. Michael Chong, the Conservative MP for Wellington and Halton Hills, uh, with some pretty good ideas and recommendations about how Parliament could run, not just more effectively, but I think in a more democratic uh, fashion. And, and I know that sounds a little trite, but you know, it's a cliche, yeah, but it can be and it should be. And as he's mentioned uh, in, in his, his preamble uh, to, the, uh, to the suggestions that he's talking about here, I think we're getting off track right now. Like you know, the party leaders, the party whips hold way too much power. Uh, you want to hear from your members of parliament. You want to know what they're doing. And I know we get newsletters from them uh, from time to time, depending on which uh, which constituency you're in. Uh, and that's all well and good. But, you know, you want to be able to find out just what's happening. And we, I think, you know, there's a, a, a desire on behalf of, of the constituents to say, okay, where does my member of parliament stand on this issue? And uh, do they have an opinion on this at all? Or are they simply going to parrot what the, the party leaders are telling them to say time and time again? And it can be awfully frustrating for the MPs. I, as I say, I've talked to a lot of them over the years that uh, have similar concerns uh, that Michael has just expressed to us here. So uh, here's hoping that they'll be open-minded about this. And it's it's not a big sea change, but I think it's something that could make uh, the federal government especially uh, and well, let's face it, by extension, the, the provincial legislatures a lot more effective. And, uh, and, and that's really what we want to do here, isn't it? To get people engaged and feel as if they can be part of the process. Anyway, we'll continue to keep our eyes on that story and keep you posted as to where it goes. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.